the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, everyone lives for something. If you were to ask the world out there, outside, what do they live for? What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What compels you? What is the center of your universe? You get the usual suspects from the world. Money, success, happiness, family. And maybe their answer will be seasonal, changes with the times. Maybe it's right now to get past COVID, to get vaccinated. Maybe it's something not just for themselves, but they believe they have a part in in promoting for the world. Vaccinations, again. Equality. Justice. They cry it out loud. They march for it. They fight for it. They live for it. It is what drives them. But if we were to ask the people in here, we'd all have the same answer. The gospel. The gospel drives us. The gospel compels us. The gospel is the center of our universe. The gospel is how we entered into a relationship with God. The gospel teaches us how to exist for God. And the gospel is why when we exit this life, we will see God in glory. It is the gospel. It's the center of our lives. It is everything. It compels us, motivates us, excites us, sometimes scares us. The gospel. But there is much to be learned as believers. That's why we're here in church. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we pray for help. There's much to be learned about how the gospel can be a motivating factor for all that is good in our lives and a disinfectant for all that is bad. So as with many things, we learn from the example of the Apostle Paul, living a life and a commitment that is distinct from ours yet still rife with examples to follow as to how to live out the gospel, how to cherish the gospel, how to make the center of our lives not that or that or that, but the gospel. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. Continuing his thought as he addresses the Corinthians and his situation regarding being paid as an apostle, He starts in verse 15 for us this morning through 18. He says, But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now remember the context here. The wider context is Christian liberty. It is giving up rights that are yours as a Christian for the sake of others. The specific context is Paul foregoing financial support from the Corinthians despite being an apostle and a minister, their evangelist, their church planter. It is a right he has as a minister of the gospel. But in our passage this morning, he further explains or answers the question, why does he forego this right? He's made mention of it briefly thus far in our study, but in our passage this morning, he elaborates on it and gives us three motivating factors 
in Paul's decision. That's our outline. Three motivating factors in Paul's decision, the decision being the refusal of payment from the Corinthians. Despite affirmation of the Lord's mandate that ministers should be paid, despite the fact that other ministers to the Corinthians have been paid. Three motivating factors in Paul's decision. The first motivating factor, as we'll see, is biblical boasting. Biblical boasting. Let me read for you again verse 15, which says, But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things, so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. The things that he mentions here, or the rights, if you have the ESV or the NIV, that Paul has not made use of are, of course, the rights to receive pay from the church for his ministry to them. He makes it very clear, as we saw last week and specifically in the previous verses, that he should receive pay. That workers in secular vocations are sustained by whatever their work is, And he goes on and he said, even those responsible in the temple, whether Jewish or pagan, are given a share of the animal sacrifices so that they can eat, so that they can be sustained. It's for their personal consumption. And finally, he appeals to Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, who proclaimed that the worker, specifically the gospel worker, is worthy of his wages. Now, all of those rights are ultimately the same right, but Paul has not made use of that. He has neither taken nor requested pay. And he wants to make clear that he's now not requesting pay. He says, I quote, I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. Just in case you think I'm writing these things so that you will pay me, that's not what I'm doing here, Paul says. He's assuring the Corinthians and especially the cynics in their midst that his explanation of a pastor's right to pay is not a veiled request for his own pay, for them to send money. This is not a passive-aggressive jab at them, so they will do right by him. He simply doesn't want it. In fact, he goes so far as to say that he would rather die than receive money from them. It's not just about the pay itself. It's what receiving the pay would do. See, if Paul were to receive a financial gift from the Corinthians, this would, in his words, make his boast an empty one, and he would rather die than that happen. The ESV says it would deprive him of his ground for boasting. But we understand it's not boasting as we understand it. It's biblical boasting. This boasting is one of those things that is generally considered bad and even sinful, but can be positive. At the very basic level, boasting refers to that which someone glories in. It is the basis for someone's glorying. It also has the idea of what you rejoice in, what you revel in, what makes you happy. And with that understanding, it becomes clear that we all boast in something. We all boast in something. But is our boasting biblical. What are you excited about? What do you grab someone by the arm and say, hey, listen, you got to hear this. The reason boasting is generally considered bad is due to the tendency of man to boast or glory in things that are not worthy of glory. Their possessions, their families, their boyfriend, their status in life, themselves. In other words, anything that is not the one and only thing, the one and only thing that is worthy of glory, that is God. Let me rephrase that. If you boast in anything besides God, your boasting is wrong. And immediately you understand when boasting is good. When you boast in God himself, who he is, or the things of God, the work of God, It's not your job per se, but that God gave it to you. That's good boasting. Okay, it's not that you're finally in a relationship, you're finally pregnant. It's that God did that. 
that you boast in God and what he has done for you. That's good boasting. You glorify God. Going back to the definition of what boasting is, you glory in him. You rejoice in his works. You revel in what he has done in your life and in others. You can see how the sin of boasting is often connected to the sin of pride or jealousy. You boast because he's boasting. You don't want him to one-up you. You're jealous. You feel small because everyone's like, hey, good job, congratulations. Yeah, but I. And the boasting becomes negative. It becomes sinful because you're trying to lift yourself up. But when you have mastered and you focus on biblical boasting, you're not just boasting in what God has done in your life. You boast in what God has done in other people's lives because it's not about you or him. It's about God, you see. There's no jealousy if you're boasting biblically because you're truly joyful in what other people are experiencing because you see God's hand in that. Psalm 20 and verse 7. There's a song about this. This It's a great verse. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. You know what that means, right? Today it's military might, information, missiles, trained soldiers in terms of war. Back then it was chariots and horses because that was life right? More chariots, more horses, you win, you conquer. Roman Empire, ring a bell. That's what they boast in. That's what Caesar boasts in. That's what the kings boast in. We boast in God. It's not about how mighty you are, how good you are. Galatians 6.14. Galatians 6.14. But may it never be, Paul says, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's not just a focus on the cross. He's saying, because I boast in the cross and I would never boast in anything else, Paul says, he says, anything else in the world has been crucified to me. It makes no sense to boast in a dead, rotting carcass because that's what what the world is to me. Paul says, I know Christ now. I know the gospel. Why would I boast in who I am, in my DNA as a Jew? Why, why would I boast in my success in knowing God's law? Why would I boast in all the money I've made as a tent maker and the quality of my tents? It is all rubbish to me now because I boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9. 23 and 24, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Look around you. The unbeliever who is extremely wise, what else would they boast in? The rich man who does not know the Lord, what else would they boast in but their riches? Oh, no, no, they, the Zuckerbergs boast in the hospital they built. Yeah, and how did they build a hospital? It's in their riches. It's in their success. It's in themselves. The mighty man, the greatest fighter, the greatest warrior. Oh, you've seen this, my friends. You have seen this. Well-known boxers all over social media and on the news, waving their $100 bills and their big gold chains. They're just boasting in their own might, which has brought them that money and the success and the cars and the houses. They have nothing else to boast about. In a sense, we should be happy for them. Hey, they got nothing else, and when this life is over, we know where they're going, so they're going to reject God. At least enjoy what you can because the future looks bleak. But we, we know better. 
We boast in God. We glory in God. We rejoice in God and what He has done. And this, in these verses we've seen, is the kind of boasting that Paul does. This is the kind of boasting that he's referring to here when he says, I would rather die than have this boast removed from me. It's biblical. So now let's connect the two concepts. The reason Paul's boast would be empty is because it would not be in the Lord. The reason Paul's boast would not be in the Lord is if he preached for money, if it was just a job, if it was just because the tent making, the tents aren't selling, there's more competition. I can't charge as much anymore because they understand that leathers are easier to come by now. And so it's easier for me to make money planting churches. It's just a job. So his boast is not in the Lord. His boast is be in money. His boast would be in his oratory skills, whatever it may be. Let me put it this way. We all have jobs because we're responsible people. We have jobs because we need to pay the bills. We need to survive. So, we graduate from high school or college and we start applying. Then we get a job. Maybe you're happy in it, maybe you're not, but it pays the bills. So first you have this job, and then you do your best to learn to glorify God in that job, to find joy in that job. Paul reverses that. His joy is found in ministering the gospel. His joy is found in his job. He doesn't want anyone to think that it's a job, it's just a job, and I'm going to try to glorify God in it. That is what he glorifies God in. That is what motivates him. He doesn't want someone to be able to say, if it weren't for the pay, he'd just go back to tent making. That's what he's talking about here. He'd rather die than for people to be able to say that. But they can't say that if he's not getting paid. It's not about the money. And for everyone else, it's all, always about the money. That's not a 2021 thing. Everyone needs money to survive, even back then. And so, he doesn't want people to remove that boast from him. And that's connected to being paid. I actually know pastors like this. Some of you know pastors like this. Who not only are they willing, but have changed their theology for the highest bidder. You feel bad for them. They're in dire straits. They can't pay the bills. Their kids are going hungry. The bank's going to take their home. So, well, I don't really believe that. I've never taught that. But I'll accept your doctrinal statement because you're willing to give me a job and you need a pastor. But Paul's boast is true and unadulterated gospel boasting. I don't want you to miss that he would rather die than have it any other way. Would you? Would you rather die than have your boast in anything but the Lord? Would you? How did Paul do it? How should you do it? On a practical level, I believe the first two verses of the great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, gives us the answer. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them 
to his blood. What do you boast about? See, Christian, when we boast about things that are not of the Lord, our heart, our conscience, our minds, our Bibles, our friends and family, your pastor, they all tell you they are vain things. You know they are vain things, and yet we can't help but boast in them. You know they're vain. You know they have charmed you, like the hymn writer says. You know it is status quo, it is society. You know that it's the fear of man. You know that you want to rise up in others' views of you. You know that. It's nagging at you, but we still do it. When I survey the wondrous cross... You know what that means to us and how we apply that? It means not just when you read the Gospels, not just when you hear about the Gospel, not just that you know about the cross, but you think about it. You meditate on it. You think about who you would be without it. Think about what people are without it right now. Would you rather die than have your boast in anything but the Lord? Be careful, friends. What I've just said is the kind of thing that churches throughout history have misinterpreted and have said, it is wrong to be happy. It is wrong to enjoy food. It is wrong to buy a home or start a family and find joy in that. No, no, that's not what we're saying. The ascetic lifestyle does not work. People have tried that. Monks have tried that. Godly men have tried that. It does not work. The Catholic Church in some ways still tries that. Interaction with others, not living on a cliff, but no marriage. Vow of celibacy does not work. It is being so consumed with God that you see Him in everything. You give Him thanks for everything. You give Him glory in everything. And you find joy and acceptance and gratitude in a full comprehension of He that giveth can also taketh away. Because you're so in tune with boasting in the Lord that when He takes away, you say, this is His plan. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to say, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do now. But it's not okay to say, how dare you, God? I deserve that. And you won't if your boast is in the Lord because even though you're sad, even though it's difficult, even though you maybe have to cut down on what you eat for the next few months until the vaccine rolls out or restaurants open again because you're a waiter or waitress or whatever it is, you say, I know that God is doing what is best for me. And though it is hard for me, I trust Him because my boast is in the Lord. When you start understanding it in this way, And when you understand it's not just about, oh, I feel guilty because I'm having a beer. Oh, I feel guilty uh, because I bought a, a really nice car, whatever it is. You understand there are more important issues here, issues of life, issues of survival, issues of God's sovereignty. And then you start understanding it's not the peripherals. It's not just the gray areas. And you say, indeed, I understand what it means at least conceptually, to say I would rather die than boast in anything else because it is spiritually dangerous and damaging. Biblical boasting. We say this is a factor in Paul's decision not to take pay. I would argue it's a factor in everything Paul decided since that meeting with Jesus Christ on the road. 
But let's move on and see a second motivating factor in Paul's decision, and that is a special stewardship. A special stewardship. Look at verses 16 and 17. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. I know that these verses on, on its surface can be confusing. I'm going to break it down for you. To give you, uh, to help you grasp this before we go into the details, unlike a normal pastor today who gets saved, becomes a Christian, at some point chooses to become a pastor, Paul was saved and made an apostle at the same time. It's very different for him. His calling to apostleship was uniquely from the Lord. It was conveyed miraculously and audibly by Christ himself. So Paul had no choice but to preach the gospel. He didn't go to college years after becoming saved and say, you know, I think I might go to seminary. He had exactly zero seconds from the time of conversion to be chosen and called to be a minister of the gospel. That was part of his salvation. And so in verse 16, he says he has nothing to boast about in his ministry because he is under compulsion. Again, it wasn't just a job. He was compelled to do it by virtue of his calling. Under compulsion means there was a force or pressure upon him to do it. It's not something he chose to do. It's something he had to do. God saved him and at that very moment said, you will do this. He had no choice. Yes, in God's sovereignty, but not when I was saved did God say clearly to me, you must become a missionary. You must become a pastor. I figured that out later, as did every pastor alive today. Most people get saved, they don't even know what a pastor is at the moment of salvation. It was part of God's specific design and calling for his life. The ESV says, necessity is laid upon me. The NIV says, I am compelled to preach. He has to do it. Galatians 1.15, Paul acknowledges that he was set apart this way, saved, yes, but also as an apostle from his mother's womb. There are, uh, he's not the first. There are similarities to Jeremiah and John the Baptist. In Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is not just talking about election. This is not just talking about salvation. This is a talking about a specific calling to be a prophet. We see this later reflected in his compulsion in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. He says, but if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, in other words, if I no longer do my duty as a prophet, he says, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. If I stop proclaiming the words of God because of my calling, Jeremiah says, I'm going to die. This is not the easier way for him. He's compelled to do it. It's just a more, more poetic way of saying what Paul is saying in our passage. In Luke chapter 1, the angel tells Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, also happens to be his earthly cousin, that his son, John the Baptist, will be one who will be set apart specifically from any wine or liquor and will receive the Holy Spirit while in the womb. While in the womb. Why? Because he's told that his son John the Baptist will be responsible for turning many Israelites back to God. And he did that, paving the way for Jesus Christ and his ministry. You say, well, in God's sovereignty, isn't this every pastor, every believer when they share the gospel? Yes, but not in this way. 
this is different. This is unique. It's very specific, very special. And when we go back to Paul's understanding this and saying, I, I can't boast in this because I'm under compulsion. I'm forced to do this. It's like comparing someone, uh, comparing to someone rather, who at midnight tonight, their lease runs out. They are compelled to move out. So he calls a bunch of you guys, sends an email to Keith for the helps team, and a bunch of people from church help him move out before midnight. Are they all moving physical objects? Yes. But the person who will face legal ramifications if he doesn't move is compelled to move. He's moving because he has to, not because he wants to. The rest of us, on the other hand, we're not compelled to move. We're just doing it as a favor. We could take it or leave it. We could say we'll show up and say something came up and not show up. We could say, no, I don't want to do it. We're all there by choice. He has to do it. You see the difference? But everyone there is moving stuff into the van. In the same way, Paul says, I can't boast. You can't pat a guy on the back for, or you can rather, pat a guy on the back. Hey, good job helping him move. That was really nice of you. I know you just got the vaccine. Your arm is sore. That was really nice of you to still carry all that heavy stuff. But you don't pat the guy in the back who had to move out and say, hey, that was really good of you to move out before midnight. Good job, buddy. No, he had to do it. You would have rebuked him if he had it. He was legally obligated to move. And that's the difference. This is what Paul is saying here. He's the guy who has to move. Don't pat me on the back. There's no boasting here. I'm compelled to do it. I have to do it. Don't praise me for doing what I am supposed to be doing. In fact, he feels so strongly about this that he says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Remember what we read about Jeremiah? It's burning within him. He grows weary holding it in. Woe. It's a common biblical interjection that always indicates pain or displeasure. There's some sort of discipline or punishment from the Lord if Paul doesn't do this. He won't lose his salvation, but he understands he will be chastised. Now, all pastors are promised a stricter judgment, chapter 3, verse 1 of James, but how much more Paul in his circumstance as a uniquely called apostle. And it's interesting to think that he is saying, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Why do I find that interesting? Because it is due to preaching the gospel that the Apostle Paul has faced constant physical harm and threat of death, emotional pain, and yet he's saying, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. You would look at his life and all of his scars and all of his fleeing in the middle of the night and say, brother, Woe is you for preaching the gospel. But no, he says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And it goes back to his boasting in the Lord. He's so focused on the Lord that that physical pain, uh uh-uh. It's nothing compared to what he knows he must do. Not preaching the gospel? Now that's dangerous. Stonings, whips, shipwrecked, people wanting to kill me, dragged by who knows what, the hair, the arm, the leg, behind a horse, into an amphitheater. No, no, no. Not preaching the gospel. That's dangerous. What an example to us. Why? It says this is physical harm. If I don't do my duty in the Lord, that's a fate worse than death. He further explains this compulsion in verse 17. In the first part of the verse, he clearly says that he does not do this voluntarily. If he did, he could get paid, no problem. But he does this against his will, so it's a stewardship 
Careful here. When we talk about someone doing something against his will today, it denotes something negative, something he doesn't want to do. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's simply saying that he didn't have a choice in the matter and that it wasn't voluntary. It's not that he was unwilling to obey. It means he had no part in the calling. In in fact, despite it being against his will, he finds great joy in it. He wants to do it. We know that. It's similar to saying, I did not choose to be male. I did not choose to be Chinese. I had no part in that. I had no say in that. But I will live it out and I will enjoy it. Difficulties? Of course. But that doesn't deter me because I have no choice in the matter. It is what it is. Despite what people want, despite what science can do, despite the sin of our world, I will be male no matter what. No matter what. Surgeries, pills, choice, whatever. I am male. Nothing can change that. And so, I'm compelled to live as a male. I'm compelled to live as a Taiwanese American. Different, I understand, but that's the idea behind what Paul is saying. I didn't have a choice in his apostleship and his preaching of the gospel. So, pay is not an option. Don't praise me for it. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to doing. I have no choice. And he says, because it is, quote, a stewardship entrusted to him. You remember what a steward was? comes from the imagery of slavery back then. Someone gives the steward something to take care of, be it something physical like money, land, or his children, or a responsibility, something that is valuable to the one who owns the slave. The steward is then to take care of it properly to the master's happiness. For Paul, that is the gospel ministry. I have been given a stewardship of the gospel, which doesn't just include evangelizing. It's evangelizing for the sake of, you know, planting churches, discipling, all those types of things. It's a stewardship. And when you talk about a stewardship for Paul or for any of us, it's an obligation, it's a responsibility, and it involves faithfulness on the part of the servant to the master in whatever the task. Though those terms and those classifications are not what we have, it's the same thing with your work. If you are hired to do something, you are obligated to do it. You have to be responsible. You have to be faithful to teach those kids to deal with that lawsuit, to help the client with his accounting or provide IT, whatever it is. You understand, right? It's a stewardship. But when Paul uses this word in the world and where, I don't want to say slavery still existed because it still exists today, but you know what I mean. The steward back then does not ask for pay. He's a slave. He doesn't ask for pay. It's like, oh, I'm a steward now instead of a, a, a field hand. Do I get a raise? There's no raise. There's no pay. He's just given the task, and it's not an option. He's expected to do it because he's a slave. It's the same thing with Paul. Jesus called him on the road to Damascus to be his slave and told him what his task would be. And so Paul says, I don't, don't pat me on the back. Don't pay me. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm merely a slave exercising his stewardship. Now, we know that this level of stewardship on a spiritual level is unique to Paul, but we too are called to be stewards on many levels by the Lord of God's grace towards each other, of the gospel. We are called to be stewards of one another. And so my question is, are you fulfilling your stewardship? Are you fulfilling your stewardship with the mindset of a steward? You have been given what is God's, and you are to take care of that. 
God has given you this church and the people in the church to take care of. I do not care if you don't like them. I don't care if you're newly wed and you want to just spend time with your wife. I don't care. You've been given a stewardship and you have no right to say no. You are supposed to do it. We're stewards. I don't care how scared you are. You share the gospel. You're a steward. So we don't just fulfill our stewardship. We fulfill our stewardship like a steward. Not talking back, not what if, not but how about later. We are to do it. That's it. We don't serve because I want to or because I have the time or I can readjust. You do it because you're supposed to. You do it because your master told you to and you have no choice. Now today we do have a choice and when you don't do it, that's why we call it sin. Even in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we see this. Remember this parable? Master's going on a journey. So he gives three different slaves, stewards, some money. One he gives five talents. One he gives three talents, excuse me, two talents. And one he gives one talent. When he comes back, the guy who was given five had made five more, gives him back ten. The two made two more, gives him back four. The one said, I I knew you're a hard man, and so I didn't want to risk losing it, so I buried it in the ground. You're back. Here's your one talent back. He didn't lose it. He still gave it back. And yet that guy was punished in a horrific way, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I always found that strange, frustrating. I get if he lost it or he spent it selfishly, he still gave him the original money back. Why is he punished like that? And the answer is here, because he wasn't a free man who could do what he wanted, even if he thought it was good for the master. He was supposed to do what he was told to do, make more money. And yet he didn't do that. He didn't have a choice in the matter. I mean, if someone borrowed something from you, a cup of sugar, something like that, and then said, hey, you know, it was <laughs> buy one, get one free at Safeway, so here, I'm going to give you two pounds back. You'd be like, thanks, but you don't really have to do it. Right? It's just a friend. It's voluntary. You're not under obligation to even give it back. And if you gave one back... She came back with a cup of sugar, you'd be like, I didn't expect it. Sugar, you don't have to come back all this way with a cup of sugar. You have to do that. But that's not the case here. These guys had no choice, and that's why the guy who just gave back one talent was punished. Because he was a steward who was told what to do and had to do it, and so are we. Paul's stewardship is unique, but it doesn't change the reality of what we are called to do and how we are to do it. Real quickly, let me give you our third and final motivating factor in Paul's decision, the righteous reward. We've seen biblical boasting. We've seen special stewardship. Now the righteous reward, verse 18. He says, if you're not going to pay me, I don't want pay. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Here we see that Paul does receive pay for his preaching of the gospel, but not pay in the conventional sense. His pay is the freedom to preach the gospel. His reward is the joy of choosing to put aside Christian liberty. To go back to the larger context at hand, The irony of his wages being the ability to not take wages is incomprehensible to the secular mind, to the unsaved mind. Your pay is not being paid. Unbelievers don't get this. They want to be paid. For them, it's not God, but money makes the world go round. So they don't get it. But the spirit-filled intellect of the believer, we understand this fully. 
Why? Because what's more important than money? So much more, but joy, love, preferring others. In this context, preferring others and loving others and finding joy in ditching those gray areas and choosing others. As we'll see next week, there are practical ramifications of this, such as him not being controlled by those who pay or pay more. But we can rest assured that the larger picture comes not from interpersonal relationships or politics, but a Godward joy and pleasure in doing what he does, in fulfilling his calling, in preferring others, in loving. And this is the key to our view of Christian liberty. Is not practicing the gray area reward enough or do you need praise and recognition? I just want you to know that I used to do this. But when I found out you had a problem with it, I threw it all away. Huh? Huh? Pat? Huh? Pat? I get we sometimes do that as a means of love and encouragement. But do you always need something that answers the question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Yeah, you know, at least by not doing that anymore, I saved some money. It was a costly habit. Oh, well, at least I can share with my small group. Hopefully that question's on the small group list today. How well I'm doing in my love for others. Or is God's glory enough? God's glory and your subsequent joy, which will really only come if you truly have a focus on God's glory. If it is, then you understand not just reward, but righteous reward. You understand where Paul's coming from. And let's not forget that all of this for Paul is because of his gospel compulsion, as it should be for us. So for Paul, his life is so consumed, so enamored, so in tune with God's will that to choose to forego a right that he biblically deserves for the sake of the gospel is a no-brainer. He didn't grant, hey, Barnabas, what do you think? Is this, are you, should we, it's a no-brainer. And we see this in our outline today. His biblical boasting, his special stewardship, his righteous reward. So I ask you again, Christian, beloved, what do you live for? What compels you? What is the center of the universe? Out there, they literally, as you have seen in the news, shouted in the streets, success, equality, my political beliefs. In here, we shout the gospel. But then we in here go out there and there's things pulling on us. The boss calls. The hospital calls. The new car you like drives by. The bills come in. Predators are knocking. Family wants to visit. Old friend from college contacts you on Facebook in a flood of memories of all those dreams of success that you once had with him or her. Oh, man, what am I doing? I need to get back to that, get back on track. And you click on their pictures of their nice cars and their big house and even more so. We got to be careful. It's a reality. And we need to be aware of it. And so we need to be consumed with the gospel, live for the gospel. So when all these things are pulling at us, they transform into something that has to do with the gospel. For the Lord. 
we can't talk about being compelled by the gospel without talking about what Paul is really talking about here, preaching the gospel. Stir you up in a frenzy and we're here, gospel, gospel, gospel. You go out there, well, um, uh, can I tell you? Are you compelled by the gospel? Not just what you would write down on a survey in a church membership application if it says, what are you compelled by? Not what you would say if I ask you. Not what you plan to say in small group this week. But what you really live. Not just what you say. Not just what you're supposed to do. Do you live the gospel? Are you compelled by the gospel? But I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and so blessed to be able to live in a world in where you provide not just the bare necessities, but so much for us to enjoy. And yet it is so easy for us to get caught up in the things of the world, the allures of the world, the temptations of man and woman, and we forget the gospel. We make it part of our lives and not everything, and Lord, we need your help to make it everything. Make us compelled by the gospel. Our decisions in ministry, our decisions in marriage, our decisions in family, our decisions in finances, purchases, every word that we speak to another person, every thought, may it be compelled by the gospel, Lord. And teach us, Lord, teach us what that means. Teach us how to flesh that out in our lives. To not just preach the gospel, but to live by the gospel, that the gospel would be everything to us because you are everything to us. Help us to recognize the distractions that are pulling us away from that. The things that we are happy about and focused on so that we may see if it is gospel-centered and if it can be that we would absorb it into our walk with you so that we would not just be happy and focused, but we would be joyful and exuberant because we recognize that you are in it. This is the kind of people we want to be, Lord. Make us so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand as we close.